Concern over rape is mounting in this community. Many of the same women at this workshop will gather again next month for a sheriff's talk on safety in the neighborhood. Susan Hahn, KCRA News. Well, I think that it's um, uh, a very serious situation. I think it's very dangerous. I think that the reason there hasn't been something done about it is because it's a crime against women. I imagine a lot of women in the area are scared and are nervous. Uh, if they could just kind of get to know each other's habits, their neighbors' habits, and call in if they see or hear anything suspicious at all. He did enter a house where there were other people present outside of the victim. He bound his, his victim. Uh, uh, there was a knife used, and he was wearing a mask or hood of some sort. I don't know. I have a gun, but I uh, still don't feel safe being, you know, at home alone. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. We also examine unique techniques, innovative ideas, and inspirational stories that have come out of these cases. This is the first of a series of episodes on the Golden State Killer. Perhaps there's no better example of that innovation and those unique techniques than People versus Joseph D'Angelo, also known by many folks as the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, and obviously most well-known now as the Golden State Killer. In this episode, we will focus on the complex detective work and the newest and the greatest advancement in DNA technology that was used in this particular case. I'm super excited today to be joined by former Sacramento County Sheriff's Homicide Detective Ken Clark, Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office Investigator Paul Holes, as well as two folks from Sacramento District Attorney's Office, and that is Kirk Campbell and Monica Zykowski. Welcome everybody. Uh, I'm super happy to have you here. And let me just start off with having some folks do some introductions. So Kenny, if it's okay to call you Kenny, sure. uh, Ken Clark, can you just tell, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and um, what you did for the Sheriff's Department before you retired? Sure. Well, I started as a deputy sheriff in 1992, uh, did my time in the jails patrol. Uh, and then once I was finished with patrol, I promoted to a uh, detective Went initially to the uh, robbery bureau in 2003 and then got moved over to homicide in 2005. So I spent uh, about uh, 16, 17 years as a detective uh, working in that area. And then uh, in 2015, I promoted a sergeant and spent a stint back at the jail for about a year and then returned to uh, homicide as the sergeant. And I was uh, there at the time uh, I was one of the three sergeants there when this arrest was uh, made. Okay, great. Thanks, Kenny. All right, Paul, how about you? Yeah, you know, I started with the Contra Costa County Sheriff's Crime Lab back in 1990 as a civilian forensic scientist, and then after about three years, uh, became a deputy sheriff criminalist doing crime scene investigation, assigned to the serology unit, and then ultimately promoted my way up over time to where I was the division commander over the forensic sciences division for the sheriff's office. Uh, during this time, I became interested in all the unsolved cold cases in Contra Costa County, including the East Area Rapist case. And then ultimately, I ended my career as a cold case investigator with the Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office. 
Excellent, Paul. And I'll, I'll probably ask you later about that phone call I made to you some, sometime probably around 2000 about this cold case that was happening and, and hopefully our efforts to get it solved. Yeah. Um, all right, Kirk, how about you? Let us know what you do uh, and how you got into this business. Well, I'm probably the, uh, I, I'm going to show my age here by saying that I, I started with the uh, Folsom Police Department as a reserve uh, police officer in 1983. I uh, went down to Santa Ana Police Department when I graduated from college and worked there for a couple of years. And then in 1986, came up to back to Sacramento, uh, working for the Sacramento Police Department. Um, had a lot of fun there. Got to do a lot of uh, interesting assignments. I worked in the uh, canine unit, the air support unit. Um, where I was uh, promoted to a sergeant, uh, then eventually went over uh, back to the detectives and uh, retired as a, in 2011 as a supervisor in the uh, homicide unit and was fortunate enough to come over to, to the DA's office uh, where I've been working since uh, 2011. And uh, I'm currently a, a lieutenant in our homicide gangs unit uh, with the DA's office and fortunate to uh, be uh, working with uh, Monica and doing uh, cold case work. Excellent. All right, Monica, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I actually started at the DA's office as an intern and just never left. Um, I've been there almost 25 years now, um, starting in 2014 when um, Anne-Marie became DA. I started working on various cold case and DNA projects. And since 2018, Kirk and I have been um, working on investigative genetic genealogy. Yeah, and for those for the listeners, just to get a little, little more background about Monica, she's before she um, started working on DNA projects in 2014, she worked on a lot of DNA related things even before that, a number of different things that we've worked on in the office, but she is uh, one incredible analyst in our office, so that's for sure. Okay, so let me just, let's let's start off, and, and I think most of the listeners probably are very familiar with the crimes that um, Joseph D'Angelo committed, but Kenny, if I can have you start off, and then maybe Paul kind of fill in. Ken, if you can talk about just briefly the crimes that originated in Visalia and in Sacramento. Sure. So in the early 70s, uh, a, a series of ransacking burglaries that were sexually motivated uh, began in Visalia, California, which is down in uh, Tulare County, about halfway between Sacramento and L.A., uh, during those uh, crimes, uh, an unknown offender at the time uh, was breaking into homes, uh, not taking anything of significant value, uh, leaving behind um, uh, or leaving a clear MO pattern of uh, break-in style that was unique to him. They were able to differentiate that. Um, he had uh, moved uh, around an area near the College of the Sequoias, and it also uh, then branched out uh, just south of, uh, I believe it's Highway 198, which runs kind of east-west through Visalia. And during those crimes, he extensively prowled the neighborhood. He was a uh, peeping Tom, uh, did not show the same uh, level of care that we later see in terms of concealing his face, and he was seen by uh, individuals back then in, uh, in the course of his activities. And over a, about 100 plus burglaries, uh, he finally culminated in an attempted abduction of a young lady in her home uh, in the middle of the night. And her uh, father woke up. The father was a professor at the College of the Sequoias. His name was Claude Snelling. 
Uh, and during this abduction attempt, he was awakened by the noises. Uh, he came out into the uh, yard area where uh, our offender, who we now know to be Mr. D'Angelo, was uh, moving her uh, away from the yard and safety. Um, the father confronted him, Mr. Snelling confronted him, and uh, D'Angelo responded by shooting uh, Mr. Snelling, uh, which allowed uh, his daughter to get away. And he unfortunately uh, passed from his injuries. Uh, D'Angelo escaped and they were able to link the firearm that was used in that case to a Visalia ransacker burglary that had occurred uh, not too far away. Uh, he remained pretty uh, inactive for a brief period of time and then picked up activity again around the college. Uh, the law enforcement uh, officers and detectives working with Visalia PD at the time uh, had, had noticed a pattern where he would emerge in a certain area and begin targeting uh, some victims that uh, he had previously targeted when he had come into uh, a stressful time or had maybe potentially been seen by somebody, uh, had a close encounter. So they set up surveillances in those areas and uh, secreted detectives in garages of potential target victims. And uh, Mr. D'Angelo appeared in December following the uh, murder, which occurred in November, I'm sorry, September of 1975. And so about three months later, he's seen by a detective who confronts him. Uh, he is unmasked at the time, but does have a, a, the ski mask on top of his head, uh, kind of ready to be pulled down. And there is a uh, brief standoff between them uh, that ultimately results in uh, Mr. D'Angelo shooting a, an officer uh, from the Visalia Police Department by the name of McGowan. Uh, the officer wasn't hit by the uh, bullet, fortunately. It uh, fragmented a piece of his flashlight and uh, caused some injuries to his uh, face and eyes from that, and D'Angelo was able to escape. Uh, he goes off the radar in Visalia pretty much after that offense and uh, then pops up in our, on our radar here in Sacramento in uh, June of 1976. Fair to say that the, the, when he when he was when you say popped up in June of 76, that was kind of what began his reign of terror in the Sacramento region all the way up until he left and went to the Bay Area and ultimately to Southern California. Yes, that's correct. So yeah. how many, just to, just for the listeners, uh, if you can just give them a sense of how many sexual assaults and then obviously the homicide involving the, the young couple, the Maggiore couple, um, how many sexual assaults would you say there were? Uh, in Sacramento County, uh, I believe it was around uh, 30, give or take. A couple of them were just outside the area in neighboring counties uh, before he right. moved over to the Bay Area, uh, which Paul will talk about, and then Southern California. But he was uh, very prolific here in a, about an 18-month period of time between June of 76 and the uh, uh, late uh, winter of uh, 78. Okay, and then the culmination part of, I mean, obviously the most horrific situation here was the culmination of the murder of Katie and Brian Maggiore. And what year was that in? Uh, that was February the 2nd of 1978. Okay. All right. So Paul, tell us a little bit just in, in short summary what the what the crime spree was with the Bay Area and then ultimately Southern California. Yeah. In, in October of 78, uh, we had our first attack in Concord, California, which is about a maybe an hour, 15 minute drive south of Sacramento. And very quickly, 
because of the distinctive MO of the East Area Rapist, it was linked to the Sacramento series. And then over the course of the next um, almost 10 months, we had multiple attacks up and down the I-680 corridor in jurisdictions such as uh, Walnut Creek, Danville, Fremont, as far south as San Jose. And you know, coming from Sacramento, this is almost a three-hour drive down to where those attacks occurred uh, from Sacramento. So the, the East Area Rapist was covering a very large geography. And then in June of 1979, he had one attempt attack back up in my jurisdiction, Contra Costa County, um, where the attack went sideways. Uh, the man got up and confronted him. A woman ran out of the house and the East Area Rapist ran out of the house and then he disappeared from Northern California. Over the years, um, fair to say there was tremendous amount of work that was done by investigators really all over California that had cases. And that's really what the, the, the purpose of this podcast is, is to really highlight the, the really innovative ideas that, that were done in, in, in attempts to solve this. Um, Paul, for, for you and me, I, I recall a phone call to you probably somewhere around 2000. I was working in the, uh, what we call our rape unit at the time. Uh, asked our office to see if we could find those rape kits and, and solve the East Area Rapist. And that's, I think, how long we've known each other since uh, that phone call. I didn't know, I cold called you if my memory's right and just talked to you. And fortunately, um, you had uh, found those rape kits in Contra Costa, which ultimately led to the, to the um, linking of all of these cases um, to, to the Northern California cases, to the Southern California ones. Yeah, you know, and that was the fortunate aspect that I had is my sheriff's office was the only agency in Northern California that had actually kept those sexual assault kits all these years. All the other agencies just due to statute of limitations, or at least what was understood at the time of statute of limitations, had, they had expired and they had destroyed the kits. So I had three kits where ultimately I found DNA evidence from each kit and using an old DNA technology showed, hey, it looks like it's the same offender. And then into, around the time frame that you called, which that was the first time I knew anybody else had an interest in the case, as, as, as Anne-Marie, when you called me, uh, that was when I'm doing a little telephonic, uh, you know, actually in 97, where it was like, well, maybe there's something down in Southern California, but it wasn't until 2001 when uh, we had the, uh, the actual link using a newer DNA technology, the short tandem repeats or STRs. And, and that's when you and I had lots of conversations at that point, because you were trying to organize, you know, a multi-jurisdictional meeting and, and trying to get everybody on the same page. And, you know, I, I don't know what happened exactly, but it, it seemed like that just didn't get off the ground. Well, obviously it, it, it all came together in 2018, but one of the things I want to talk about today is just some of the amazing work you all did on this case. And Ken, Ken, you started your investigation on this case around 2005, if my memory's right. And one of the projects you had was what I'll call the burglary project. And maybe you can kind of just share with the listeners what, what that was and what your goal was on that. Sure. So one of the big questions we had was, did a the offenders start in Visalia and then move up here and then go back down to Southern California? Or was it some other combination of uh, geography uh, that he had done? So we were con concerned that maybe he had previously been here in Sacramento. Uh, and we also wanted to make sure that Visalia was, was not just a similar crime versus um, 
being directly linked because we didn't have DNA between those cases. So what I did was went back through and tried to figure out what reports I could examine from the era when he was operating uh, in Visalia and also before that period of time to determine what he was uh, doing geographically in regards to the Sacramento area. Uh, there was some report issues. They were regularly purging reports. And I got into basically the first I had access to that was not purged was 1973. And so I read the reports from 1973 and I saw the emergence uh, in early 73, I mean, immediately after the new year uh, of an offender who uh, came to be known as the Cordova Meadows burglar, uh, and then ultimately was linked uh, as well to a series of burglaries that were called the Cordova cat burglary series. Uh, and the MO of the offender was uh, strikingly similar to the ransacker and also had uh, a relationship with the uh, East Area Rapist and, and those crimes. Uh, it, it definitely showed me that, that it appeared or it appeared that the offender had begun here in Sacramento, had gone down to Visalia and then come back here again for the East Area Rapist series. And we did notice that uh, around the late spring and early summer of 1973, uh, he disappears uh, from the record uh, in California, or I'm sorry, in uh, Sacramento. And that is around the time that there's rumblings of him in Visalia, which would be consistent with his uh, uh, D'Angelo's application process and the events he had going on with the Exeter Police Department. I mean, I think it's fascinating to see I used to talk about this a lot, that pretty much every list known to man was created in this case in an effort to find a name. Um, and I often said it was a, a needle in a haystack. And so that project that you started um, didn't ever reveal his name, right? But it definitely showed some patterns and MOs that, that obviously led you to believe it was quite possible he was the same person, right? Yes. And I mean, there was always the hope that somebody in the course of those crimes that we were investigating from way back then all the way through his EAR crimes, because I read all the attendant crimes in 76 through 78 as well. So I read all those reports. The hope was that somebody had seen a license plate, uh, right. in some way identified him. Hey, that's, you know, that's Joe. He's the guy that I see at Bel Air all the time or something like that. And that maybe uh, it would have linked up and not been noticed during that time. But, you know, the other side of it was, of course, to just learn more about him, learn more about the types of uh, offenses he was committing. And that was, that did prove valuable and it did help us to uh, focus a lot on uh, Visalia because that is such a small town back then in the seventies uh, and work on Visalia and the link to Sacramento, which is what we ended up uh, trying to do later. Okay. So then one of the, uh, a couple of the other projects, and I'm going to turn to Kirk and Monica here is, and, and, and I know there was lots of projects that you were working on, Ken, Paul was working on, uh, two particular projects that I thought were interesting were what I call the phone book project and the yearbook project. And I'll start with Kirk. Um, and maybe you can kind of explain it. And I know, Kenny, you were working on some a similar project with city directories, and maybe you can chime in uh, as well. But Kirk, why don't you tell us what the phone book project was? Well, that project was we uh, were basically trying to, in addition to the list we already had, but get more more lists or more names uh, from uh, from people from these various areas where he struck in both Northern and Southern California. And one way of, of capturing more names was, was to look at phone books because back in those days, most people were actually in the phone book, unlike, you know, unlike today. 
And so we tried to get as many phone books as we can from the jurisdictions where he struck during those time periods. And there was a company that we found that actually automated these phone books uh, and uh, put them on a, uh, like in a PDF format. And so, uh, but many of these jurisdictions and areas uh, and time periods, what we we're looking for, they, they weren't automated. So we ended up uh, having to call a lot of public libraries, um, seeing if we could get a copy of their, you know, Santa Barbara 1979 phone book and, you know, telling them this was in, in furtherance of an investigation to identify a serial killer. So that made for some interesting conversations with some li librarians. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> They, uh, you know, oftentimes are, you know, very reluctant to, you know, let us have these phone books because, you know, they're afraid they wouldn't get them back. And so we really had to give them some insurances that, uh, that no, we would return them. But uh, so we were able to get phone books from all these different jurisdictions and um, automate them. And we eventually got the help of an uh, IT person from the Sacramento Police Department that um, created a um, program that would that would crunch all these different, you know, we had 40 plus different lists of, you know, suspect lists, uh, lists from our phone books, uh, uh, you know, from uh, county crime uh, databases from CDCR. Uh, so we just had, an, you know, an endless amount of lists, you know, school attendance lists. And that was part of it was this uh, yearbook project was getting even in more um, names of people that, um, you know, could possibly, you know, contain our, our suspect. And we're the hopes of that we, once we ran these number of these lists through our, our program, that it would um, eventually, uh, we would see a name that might appear, you know, on uh, more than one list and kind of stand out. And it was kind of interesting because uh, some investigators early on in, uh, when the crime series was first uh, starting, um, did the same kind of project uh, and computers were in their infancy at this time with the Lawrence Livermore lab. And uh, it was interesting because one of the name, one of the names they came up with was one of the same names that was revealed all these years later with all these multiple lists we had. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting project, you know, uh, you, you know, led, led us to a lot of potential, you know, people that we um, would look into, but it also, uh, as part of that project, we tried to um, recreate, really recreate that Cordova Meadows uh, area of Rancho Cordova, where he was first started out. And, you know, we used a combination of the, the this list we uh, investigators obtained from SMUD, uh, the people that had moved in uh, into that area in about 1976, uh, with a 1976 uh, phone book, we were able to break it down further by zip code. Uh, and by a list from the uh, county assessor's office and uh, to really almost recreate this entire neighborhood from uh, that time period. And it was interesting because I think that's really when I started uh, first working with Paul. I had, uh, I remember getting a call from Paul saying that uh, he had just uh, spoken with a, uh, uh, somebody from the county assessor's department. And I guess I had spoken to him uh, you know, a week or so, a few days prior to that. He says, hey, do you guys know each other? You might want to, you know, give each other a call. And so uh, I got that call from Paul. And so then we, you know, started to, uh, uh, you know, kind of collaborate on that, on that project. I think at the same time, Ken, you were working on a list, I think you mentioned to me, called city directories and trying to, similar to the concept of trying to recreate neighborhoods, right? Yeah, the, uh, 
we found that city directories had a wealth of information in terms of address, the profession uh, of a person. They had actually listed, you know, what the person did for a living, um, names, people in the household. So we did the same thing with that list and uh, that Kirk's talking about in terms of trying to link uh, people up. Um, we also used, uh, we had kind of surmised that given that we felt there was a pretty, um, pretty formal emergence into the Sacramento area in the summer of 76, uh, given a period of adjustment that he might have uh, had for a couple months here or there prior to those crimes starting, uh, we decided to pursue all the, or the utilities in the area as well, thinking that he may have come into the Sacramento area and obtained utility services. So the utility uh, companies here locally were extremely good with us. They uh, got us information on new startups and brand new customers and uh, uh, that type of information. So we had a list for that, which was vast. Uh, we went through some of the uh, public database clearing houses that people probably know from, uh, you know, the uh, investigative side of things and certainly the public uh, uh, information that's out there that you can Google and everything today. We, we went to those clearing houses and asked them for geographic comparisons using some of our hotspots uh, to see if people appeared on multiple lists. And uh, right. we did get some people that did uh, appear on multiple lists. And uh, unfortunately, D'Angelo was not uh, on those. Um, and I believe I based that on the fact that he was, he was always living just a little bit outside of the zone that we selected. So in hindsight, I probably would have broadened the, uh, the radius for the searches we did. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, when you broaden them, you get a ex much larger pool of people. Um, but, you know, that's how we did it back then, thinking that he was a little closer to the uh, center of the radius that he ended up being. The attack took place about uh, 10 p.m. The girl, the babysitter, the 15-year-old victim was in the home alone at the time watching television. Uh, the suspect uh, kicked his way through a back door into the room where the uh, victim was, uh, was located. Uh, he attacked her uh, once in the home, and then uh, after some phone calls came into the home, he removed her to the backyard where a second attack took place. Uh, as it turned out, the uh, people that she was babysitting for had called the residents uh, uh, to check on her welfare, and uh, when they got no, no response, they called her parents, thinking she may have went to her home with their child, and of course she wasn't there. It was at that time that uh, the victim's parents called the home, and that uh, they did get one answer. The girl said hello and then hung up. As it turned out later, the suspect forced her to answer the phone and then hang it up. He then That's when he removed her to the backyard. The parents immediately drove to the home, and of course, uh, when they arrived in the driveway, the suspect fled from the backyard. You know, and I, I think it's important to emphasize that these lists that are being generated, you know, minimally, there are often thousands, if not tens of thousands of names, you know, so it was overwhelming when you start looking at that, that number of, of people. Yeah, and it was, I mean, to me, when I remember first looking at it and seeing some of those thousands of people's of names, and I, I would tell people the, about the only thing you knew at the time was that he was a white guy. You know, that's about the most definitive piece of information. Uh, Monica, let me introduce you here and ask you to just, you know, one of the projects that folks worked on was this, I called it the yearbook project. Maybe just tell the listeners kind of what it was and what was the goal. Well, the thought always was that um, the suspect likely had gone to school in the area because he clearly knew the neighborhood so well. So 
we just expanded on some research that had already been done, um, you know, added, broadened the search of the schools and, and transcribed the yearbooks of many of our local high schools. We ended up um, broadening that to junior high schools and elementary schools, you know, using classmates.com has yearbooks. Um, I spent a good bit of time at the Sacramento room at our library because they have old yearbooks. Um, you know, just just trying to make sure we had a, a complete list of, of possible people. And uh, just again, and maybe Ken or Paul, he wasn't on these lists, right? No, you know, I know after D'Angelo, you know, was identified, we all took a look at all these lists, you know, that we that were you know, now computerized and D'Angelo's name didn't pop up on any of them. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, he obviously, I mean, it's the million dollar question was how was he able to get away with all this? So there was one project um, that was also done and we, I called it the jewelry project, uh, which, you know, if you guys remember, you stole lots of unique types of jewelry. Um, Kirk, you want to mention what, what was the jewelry project and, and what, where did it get us anywhere? Well the, well, the jewelry project was going back and looking at, you know, most of these of these crimes, he would he would take something, you know, often as a token, not necessarily because it had you know, a whole lot of value to it. But, you know, some of these items he would take were pieces of jewelry. And so the idea was if we could try to identify some of these more unique pieces of jewelry uh, and then and then put it out there to the public that maybe somebody would recognize this piece of jewelry being, you know, pawned or, or uh, you know, handed down to somebody or, or something along those lines. And so we kind of poured over all the old reports and, and uh, obtained, you know, lists of the items taken uh, and then and contacted, you know, some of the victims and seeing if they had any photos uh, of, of the jewelry still. Uh, and that's so we could uh, put that out as, as a press release. and. Uh, you know, some of the more unique pieces of jewelry ended up being class rings uh, that we were able to go back. If, you know, they didn't necessarily have a photo of it. We, we contacted the, the company that manufactured the, the class rings. Uh, you know, these are from like Modesto Junior College or, you know, Lycoming College, you know, uh, different, different various colleges. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of those class rings really became some of the key pieces of jewelry that we, we, we tried to put out there. If my memory's right, I think I, I talked to you guys about this, this idea because my sister had said, you guys should put out photographs of the jewelries um, because maybe somebody has it somewhere, maybe it was, it was given, but am I correct, you know, Paul or Ken, that none of this property has ever been located? That's correct. We uh, extensively searched his residence upon arrest. We used, uh, high-tech equipment, low-tech equipment, uh, numerous investigators uh, out there going through it. And we did not find uh, anything that uh, we could directly link um, to these offenses. Yeah, you know, and I, I talked to a family member after the arrest, a long time after the arrest, who said he saw basically melted precious metals, you know, little nuggets of metals. Uh, and I think, you know, some of the stolen items, uh, he's, you know, literally just melting them down. But I've got to think that he kept the special items and they're out there somewhere. Right, right. So 
one of the things, I mean, with all these lists um, and, uh, and recognizing that he wasn't on any of them, Ken, there was a project you were working on. It was the College of the Sequoias project. And, and maybe you can kind of explain to the listeners, what was it? And do you think if it had gotten all the way through, do you think you would have ended up on the list? Yeah, so the, the College of the Sequoias during the ransacking series seemed to be a real center uh, center point geographically for his activities down there. And I think I mentioned earlier that he had he would hit right around the college when uh, he was under some pressure from the investigation down there. Uh, we know that the professor who was killed, uh, Mr. Snelling, was a uh, professor at the College of the Sequoias there in Visalia. So having seen some of the links between the ransacker uh, and the Cordova cat burglar and the Cordova Meadows burglar, uh, we figured that that was a good place to take a look and see if we could get uh, a list. And we were looking for people on that list that might have relocated to the Sacramento area because we felt very strongly that he was definitely a resident of Sacramento during the crimes or the general Sacramento area. And then we had come to believe that there was a very good possibility. Uh, we didn't eliminate people if they didn't have Visalia ties, but we felt there was a very strong possibility he was also linked to Visalia. So we had authored a warrant for uh, the College of the Sequoias uh, attempting to find white male students between basically the ages of 18 and 35, as I believe how we uh, uh, did it. It might've been up to 40, I don't remember, but we wanted a, a, a listing of those names for the period of time when he would have been uh, active uh, down there and into the time period when he would be active up here. So we had put it from uh, 72 to, uh, I believe it was 76. Uh, and we did that. We were in the progress of getting that warrant uh, signed and sent down there when the uh, case broke. So we ended up uh, going back and serving them with paper uh, in terms of a search warrant uh, for records specifically on Mr. D'Angelo. And he did pop up as uh, having had a student uh, relationship with the school uh, via the uh, academy he'd attended and some other classwork he took there. Uh, so he would have event he would have been on the list. Uh, it would have, as I think uh, Paul or Kirk mentioned, these, the, I think it was thousands of people that come up on these lists. And if you're talking about white male students at a uh, college, I imagine we would have been in the the thousands with that. So it would have taken us a, uh, you know, very uh, large amount of time to get through it. Right. But, you know, I'd like to think that maybe we would have gone alphabetically. And since he was D, maybe we'd have seen a Sacramento <laughs> right. tie and dug deep. But again, that was a long shot that we uh, were throwing out there. And, you know, it, it, I'm glad it didn't have to happen because we ended up getting an easy, easier way than that. Right. Not so easier for before, me, or not easier for Kirk right. and Monica, but easier for me. Right. So before I transition to kind of really the pinnacle of the projects here on genealogy, I just, I wanted to mention one thing that I don't think you guys were involved in, but during the course of this whole thing, we realized that Nevada, so every state in the country has a law that allows you to collect DNA from felons. And um, we realized um, through this whole case that Nevada had a law but their law was not what we call retroactive, meaning that um, there was plenty of people in prison in Nevada, uh, many you know, serial killers or sexual uh, uh, rapists, whatever, that their DNA had not yet been collected. And so a group of DAs realizing that, oh my goodness, the guy could be sitting in prison in Nevada and we don't know it. So we actually went to Nevada, not 
physically, but we made calls, worked with the Nevada DAs and the attorney general's office, and they they decided to go ahead and apply their law retroactively. And this is to me is, is kind of a cool thing that came out of this situation. It didn't solve the Golden State Killer, but as a result of them re-looking at their law and, and applying it retroactively, they, they then went out and collected DNA um, from a lot of people in their prison system and in fact solved some pretty significant crime sprees, including a guy from Colorado that was responsible or, or accused, I should say, of killing, I think, four people in Colorado. Paula, you probably remember that guy, a guy named Ewing, I think his name is. Yeah, I, you know, I, I vaguely remember the case, but I think, you know, the, that's what the, this Golden State Killer case did, is it had such huge ramifications, you know, on laws, both within the state of California, Prop 69, uh, you know, and then Larry Poole, you know, kind of going after death row inmates in California, and then you spearheading, you know, the the Nevada side, you know, so it, it, as we were trying to solve this case, it improved public safety in California by those change in laws. And Paul, kind of just, how did you, I mean, you get the credit for the idea um, of, of this idea of what we call genetic genealogy. And, and at some point you started working with an FBI guy named Steve Kramer, right? Yeah. So yeah. how did you come up with this concept? And if my memory's right, it was sometime around um, the fall of 2017. Right. It, it, it was actually predates that, you know, I was doing a different type of genealogy using YSTRs, looking for paternal relatives of the East Area Rapist. And then in February 2017, just coincidentally on a completely unrelated case, homicide in 2002, I get called into a conference call with Peter Headley from San Bernardino Sheriff's Office. And there had been a little girl associated with that other homicide case who we were sure she had been abducted from somewhere in the nation, spent 15 years trying to identify her. Well, Peter Headley reached out to dnaadoption.com and worked with the genealogist Barbara Ray Venter, actually identified this now an adult woman, but at the time of when you know she was six years old at the time that she was recovered, um, identified her. And I was asking Peter, how did you do that? And how was this done? And he brought up Barbara's name. And so my wheels were spinning because I was already sort of on the genealogy path, just a different technology. So I go back to my office and I give Barbara a call. And Barbara, you know, asked me what I've got. I don't tell her what case I'm working. I just said, it's a big case. So we had some previous work, phenotyping work done. I sent her uh, some snippets of that report. And Barbara just happened to say, you know, as we were saying our goodbyes, well, too bad you don't have SNPs. And I, you know, kind of like, well, I know what SNPs are from a science standpoint, but I didn't know how they were being used in genealogy. And at this point, Barbara dropped off the radar. She wasn't returning my communications. Um, I was pursuing some other leads and they, fell apart. And then Steve Kramer from the FBI calls me up after our very last task force meeting in March of 2017 up there in, in the Sacramento area and said, hey, Paul, you know, I hear you're pursuing DNA and genealogy. Uh, you know, I kind of believe in that. How can I help? And so that's how Steve Kramer and I first started, you know, working together. And then we just, you know, did a deep dive as we were learning the technology. So then um, if I'm if I'm correct, and because I want to get to kind of like uh, the, you know, the, the culmination of all this, but uh, 
you come to our office in November of 2017. You had found some additional DNA from a, the Ventura case of Charlene Smith. Um, fortunately, the pathologist had kept a secondary sample. So November of 2017, you come in. Monica, if, if my memory's right, first of all, I, it was you, me, and Paul, and Monica. And even though I think I understand DNA pretty well, I would uh, be remiss if I didn't admit that my eyes glassed over a little bit and trying to understand what this whole new thing was. Um, fair to say, Paul, or Kirk and Monica, did you feel the same way? Or was I just missing the beat here? Oh no, it was like Monica. to us at that time. Are you, are you yeah. saying my presentation on the DNA was boring? <laughs> no, Our understanding of it was very limited. Oh. It, was, it was tough. But I, one thing I will say is that you came, uh, I think around one o'clock, a couple hours later, Monica said to me, I have a good feeling about this. We get the, Paul, you take the sample, you send it out to get what is called SNPs, which is just really a, it's a testing procedure that gives you way more information that you can uh, look for relatedness, correct? That's correct in, in the simplest terms, sure. Okay, so then um, when was it that the next step, so you, you got this, what we call a SNP, then you have to essentially, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of this case because we're very cautious about uh, privacy and all those kinds of things, but there's this concept of tree building. So Kirk or Monica or, or Paul or whoever wants to answer, like what does that in general mean when we talk about tree building? Basically, what you're doing with tree building is, uh, you know, doing the genealogy of it is you take these these lists of people that are related to your suspect, and it's the the, the term of measurement they use is called centimorgans, and it's basically the more the more centimorgans somebody shares with somebody, the more closely related they are, and you're basically looking for a common ancestor between matches that are related to one another. Uh, in other words, these matches are related, share DNA with your the person you're trying to identify your suspect, but they're also related to each other. So you try to identify a, a common ancestor between these related matches and your suspect, and then you build down from that common, you first you build up to that common ancestor, uh, identifying that common ancestor, we call the most recent common ancestor, and then you build down in your tree to get to the level of where your potential suspect could be based off the amount of DNA they share with your suspect. So during this process, I mean, I'm just gonna, I remember very distinctly that, um, so for the listeners, Monica's office is on the same floor as mine. And um, at one point, I was probably going to her office every other day saying, what's happening, what's going on? And at one point I went in at the beginning stages and I said, is this gonna work? Monica, do you remember what you said to me? I think I said something along the lines of, this is the best hope we have, or this is the only thing we have. Because at that point, I really felt like every other avenue had been exhausted. I just remember after Paul had explained it and, you know, and after a while that it sunk in, I, I think I was overly optimistic. I thought, you know, with, with Monica's research ability and everything, I said, well, we'll probably solve this in a, in a couple of days. So uh, obviously, I was a little overly optimistic on that one, but uh, it uh, it it uh, and I've learned now they can take quite a lot longer than than uh, you know than a couple months on some cases. But uh, yeah, I was I was really excited and very confident, thinking this you know this is really really interesting. 
Kenny, had you heard anything about any of this genealogy stuff or did you have any understanding of it? Yeah, well, again, like uh, Paul mentioned, he had been working extensively with both sides of the investigation. He was somebody who we were basically doing regular detective work with. And at the same time, he also had responsibility for the DNA side of this task force. So Paul had already gone into a lot of the why stuff. He had come up a couple of times uh, with some very promising information. Uh, and I knew that I knew the limitations. I knew what he was up against in terms of what we needed for a DNA sample to go into that type of system. Uh, and so he did, he did make me aware sometime around then that he was working very hard on getting this uh, into an autosomal format. He explained that it would give us some relatedness to a potential person and link back. And I remember the day he popped into the office and basically said he had what he thought could be a, a very strong lead uh, into somebody who was potentially related to our offender. And uh, it was pretty stunning. I mean, it, uh, he explained it to me uh, in the office and he, I said, absolutely, that's uh, something to run with. And he continued down that path. And that would be, I would say, just a short period of time. In and I'd say months. And Paul, you might right. register in, but it's not long after that that things started really moving in a real positive direction. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. I'll tell you, it was, uh, it was a new thing and it was hard to understand, but uh, once Paul did explain it, it made sense that that was a good way to identify this individual, even if he didn't have any tie to the system, as we know from CODIS and everything else, family yeah. DNA. Well, you know, it's interesting, Paul, was um, because I kept pushing Monica, probably was a pest, but um, one day I went in there and I said, what's happening? What's going on? And she said, well, there's this guy. He's kind of interesting. He's probably a little bit too old, though. I'm not sure. And then, I don't know, a day or two later, I went back in and said, you know, what's happening? What's going on? And she said, well, I found this police report and uh, that, that, that he had, you know, been involved in a petty theft, a dog repellent and a hammer, and he's a former cop. And at least for me, that was one of those aha moments like, okay, this is, this is real. This is real. We're on to something here. It was quite extraordinary. From my perspective, you know, I was very skeptical just because having you know, looked at so many guys and having so got so many guys circumstantially add up only to be eliminated, you know, it was just, okay, you know, he's got some interesting geographic ties. He's got an interesting background, you know, as you know, you had a ex-fiance named Bonnie, but at the same time, I've had other guys like that. So I was skeptical up until the very end. I, I think, you know, Ken was the one, you know, as you know, we're talking, you know, Ken is getting more and more excited. And, and if you don't know, Ken can get very excitable. And, and uh, you know, as he's talking to me, he's he's almost convincing me as I was like, oh, I don't know. You know so. right. right. So, Kenny, you you then were tasked with with the surveillance on on this person. Right. Maybe you can kind of walk the listeners through, like, what was that like? Well, you know, we had done other surveillances on other people. And as Paul said, we had some very good suspects over the years. Um, you know, Paul and I were picking what year champagne we wanted to burst open. You know, this was, we had many of these people that came and went and it was, you know, you enter the doldrums, there's a period of, you step away from it for a few days or longer, you come back. And so when this thing broke and we knew that this was very likely going to be the offender, um, we, we had to get a DNA sample to confirm it. And it had to be one directly from him. 
we had all assumed that if this offender, when he was identified, became aware that he'd been identified, that he would implement some type of end game plan. We didn't know what that was. We didn't know if it would involve harm to others, harm to himself, escape. We didn't know. But we did not want him to have that advantage. Uh, so we kept it very quiet. Uh, it was very amazing to me that it did stay quiet the whole time. And so we put a, a surveillance team uh, on him uh, that included uh, some outside resources uh, and also our local uh, fugitive apprehension team guys that do that here. And they basically went about surveilling him to try and get a surreptitious DNA sample from him. Uh, it was it, to our advantage a bit that we had so many false alarms because they just figured it was just another one of, you know, Ken's larks that he's sending us off on. So they, you know, went about it with the, the same professionalism they always do, but it really didn't tip anybody's hand. There was nobody, you know, feeling that there was anything more about this than there was any of the others I had sent up. And then we moved to 24 hour surveillance. And then I think that kind of, I would say, tipped the hand a little bit that this was a, a more a serious individual. Uh, homicide detectives took the night shift because we figured it wasn't a matter of him moving. We wanted our better guys doing the, the daytime stuff. And so we took uh, the night shift and just waited him out. And during that surveillance, we saw uh, him definitely doing some uh, counter surveillance. Uh, it appeared as though he had been spooked by something. Uh, I have my theories, but uh, in any event, he took us on a couple of pretty good uh, uh, anti or counter surveillance runs that we ended up uh, deciding that we needed to pull back even further. So we ended up uh, getting it through a different means um, and we ended up finding enough of a sample that the lab uh, had about 20 items to test from the, uh, the medium that we got the sample from. And it was, I believe, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, Anne-Marie, that it was the last sample they tested that yielded the, uh, uh, the DNA, I was told. So all those things we right. took that looked so positive yielded nothing. And then one item that was taken at the very end as an afterthought gave us the full profile. So to be clear, just to, to make sure the listeners understand that you, you guys did surveillance that uh, ultimately the first sample was from Hobby Lobby. It was a door handle sample. And then, um, then there was another secondary sample. But I, I want to kind of just kind of focus on, on that initial sample because that's what really generated uh, where, we, where we were, where we were leading, where the cold case was going to go. And... Um, I just want to tell you what, so what happened was you guys get the sample. Uh, we rush it to our crime lab because we're very fortunate to have our own crime lab. And I, I'm going to speak for myself. So I remember this Friday, it was a Friday, it was Friday, April 20th. It went to the lab. I had to go to a dinner that night, um, a great high school called Cristo Ray High School. And I remember distinctly telling our chief deputy at the time, Steve Grippy, who um, oversees the lab. I'm like, you better call me if anything happens on that. So I'm standing at this dinner um, reception and I get a call from Steve Grippy. And he essentially said, are you sitting down? And I, I would have to say that I probably grilled him more about what do you mean? What does this mean? I probably, I challenged him. And Paul can understand this because I was asking very detailed questions about the DNA. Um, and, and finally, he just said, 
All I'm telling you is that it matches and the lab people are shaking. And I, then I knew, okay. So for me then, I picked up the phone as soon as I got off that call. I knew I couldn't tell, really talk to hardly anybody, but I called the sheriff. Um, and then I called Kirk and Monica. And so then from there, I just want to kind of ask you, maybe, maybe Kirk, you can, what did you, you called Paul, right? Yes. After, uh, after I got the call from you and I, I remember exactly, you know, where I was. And, uh, it's one of those times in your life where, you know, exactly where you were. And, and I remember exactly what road I was driving on and, and pulled over. But, uh, yeah. And so as soon as I got, got that from you and it was like, and we, I, I think a lot of us, you know, relate to this, but it was like a surreal moment after, you know, all these years to get that information. And it's, it's really, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to believe, you know, at that, at that point. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So as soon as I, I, you know, got off the phone with you, I, I immediately uh, called Paul. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was retired out of state shopping for a house, uh, eating dinner with my wife. I see, you know, Kirk is calling me. I step out just thinking it's a, it's another update on the surveillance. And as soon as, uh, you know, I was like, hi, Kirk. I, it was, it wasn't the typical Kirk. It was, you can't tell anybody <laughs> what, what this is about. So I knew this was going to be a different phone call. And then Kirk at that time, he, he, you said something along the lines. I'm not entirely sure what this means, you know, cause I was kind of asking you questions about what, what exactly do they have from a DNA? And you're like, I don't know exactly what it means but they, they've got 21 markers. And I just know, I remember saying, that's him, you know, was, there you go. You know, and it, it was, that was my moment of, okay, you know, this, this process worked and, uh, you know, the tingling was, was happening as I went back into the restaurant. So Kenny, tell me how you found out. Well, I had uh, received a phone call. I was at my house and the initial sample that you talked about, I had word on that and was kind of given you know, in lay terms, it was like, hey, we need one in, you know, 50 million. And this is like one in 28 million. I'm like, well, okay, well, uh, that's pretty good. You know, well, again, it's not definitive, it, but we had to double our efforts and get all of the uh, good samples over to the lab immediately. So we, I had a feeling it was obviously our guy and everything pointed to that. So once we got that second sample in, I would say that the phone call I got was a bit more expected. Uh, because I didn't think there was any way somebody could be that close on a door handle sample and, you know, all of a sudden fall away. So when I got the call, it came uh, from a, a chief in our department who had been uh, my captain in the unit. We've been B partners together in patrol and I'd known him for years. And he said, uh, I can't believe it. And he thought that I knew. So I said, you can't believe what? And he's like, you haven't heard. I said, uh, I, think I know what you're going to tell me, but I haven't heard for sure. And he said, it's him, you know, you guys got him. And I was like, okay, well, I go. time to go to work. So then I started making phone calls and uh, went immediately to my office. We'd already had a good framework warrant going and uh, Paul showed up there. Uh, one of our sex assaults supervisor, Michelle Hendricks, who's a good friend of ours, um, had also come over and uh, assisted us with the authorship of that uh, warrant. And basically Paul and I sat down with some framework warrants that he had uh, from some other efforts uh, related to this case and some framework warrants that I had, some authored by uh, uh, Detective Rob Peters, who was our lead detective at the time, because as I said, I was a sergeant, so I was in the uh, different uh, job then, but we sat down and pounded out the arrest warrant for Mr. D'Angelo. 
So before we kind of talk about the finality of the arrest, Monica, how did it feel to you when you got the word that that all this work and what you thought was a pretty good idea turned out to be actually true? Well, I, I kind of echo Paul's sentiment. I mean, logically, you know, I think we all had to know, you know, this is the guy. But there had been so many false alarms over the years. I almost feel like we were conditioned to be set up for disappointment. And so I just kind of didn't let myself get get too excited. But so really, when you made that phone call to Kirk and I, it was very surreal. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I was on my way um, to go to dinner with friends and my husband, and I was sitting through that entire dinner thinking, how how am I going to get through the next few days without telling anybody this until the arrest? It was just, it was mind boggling. Yeah, that was a challenge because it was such a big deal. And I mean, I, I remember the night of um, when he was arrested and we can talk about that in a second, but being at the sheriff's office, Ken and and Paul and being over there with him being in that interview room. And I got an email from a news channel asking if it was true. And I just ignored it because it was such an important uh, part of this process. And um, but Kenny and Paul, you guys worked on the warrants. Our office, uh, I know it was a very close circle. Myself, our chief deputy, and our head of homicide, Rod Norgard and Steve Grippy, reviewed all of those. And then you guys, uh, then you went over and had it uh, signed by uh, was it Judge White, Ken? Yes, it was. Yeah, I took it to him in the afternoon, uh, same day we made the arrest, and it had been. Uh, polished up. It looked very nice and it was uh, related to and specifically for the murder of Brian and Katie Maggiore. So that is the warrant that was taken and signed by uh, Judge White. Okay. And then um, obviously he, you know, you guys arrested him, what, about an hour or two later after the warrant was signed? Yes. I had, uh, you know, hit five o'clock traffic. I was driving on my way there. I told the uh, apprehension team that uh, don't wait for me. If they can, great. If you can't, don't worry about it, but I did not want him being arrested in the home. I wanted uh, them to wait until he was outside the residence and could not get back into the residence to be able to implement any type of uh, end game plan he might have. And that's exactly what happened. I was lucky enough to uh, uh, get picked up at a local business by one of the uh, fugitive team guys who I'd worked with for many years. And I sat in the passenger seat and literally as we pulled up onto the street, the word came over that he was uh, uh, outside the residence and had, uh, but they believe had gone far enough away from any access point to the house that he would not be able to get to it before the team closed in. And so uh, I said, go ahead. And they moved in and uh, made the arrest right there uh, on the front of his property. And Paul, were you there at the time of the arrest? Yeah, I was back at, at homicide listening to the arrest go down over the radio, you know, so what I remember is, you know, their, their, their command, their commander on the radio was basically gave the green light and then we just had radio silence. So I wasn't seeing none of us were seeing what's going on. So you're holding your breath. And then all of a sudden, the next thing is, is, you know, suspect in custody and and that conference room just erupted, you know, guys were giving high fives, you know, and I'm not a high five kind of guy, but I was, you know, kind of just thinking, okay, at least that went, that went good. But now, you you know, now is going to be the interview and, and, you know, now the wheels are spinning on my side and, and, uh, you know, what's, what, what's the next steps? That's, that's where I was at.
Morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know, my name is Anne Marie Schubert. I'm the District Attorney of Sacramento County. Let me first by saying this. The answer has always been in Sacramento. For over 40 years, countless victims have waited for justice. For many of us, it was more than a professional commitment. It became personal for many of us. There were upwards of 50 rapes, 12 murders, crimes that spanned 10 years across at least 10 different counties, northern, central, and southern California. The answer was and always was going to be in the DNA. We were looking for a needle in a haystack, but we also all knew that the needle was there. Yesterday, an arrest warrant was issued a complaint was filed charging that individual with two counts of murder with special circumstances for the murder of Brian and Katie Maggiore here in Sacramento in February 1978. We found the needle in the haystack and it was right here in Sacramento. He was ultimately convicted last summer uh, in 2020, he pled guilty to all the charges, admitted really all the uncharged crimes as well. And, and as I say this, and, and we kind of wrap this podcast up, I, I do think this was a journey for justice that began, you know, well over 40 years ago. And without these innovative ideas, and there's no doubt in my mind that had, had this idea of genealogy not been hatched, uh, he would never have been brought to justice. But just to end this all, I, I kind of want to just get your sense, uh, and I'll start with Ken, like, you know, what do you take away from this case? Well, it it was the the pinnacle of the long term investigation. Uh, at many points during the time I was working it, we you know having had other cases, we had much going on. There was uh, plenty of opportunity to kind of step away from it and not continue. Uh, I had met several of the victims of the uh, sexual assault series here in Sacramento. Uh, was motivated by them was motivated to to see this through and so i think that you know perseverance in these cases is is the key and you know i'm not the only investigator and, and neither is paul or kirk or monica but these cases are always built on a foundation of the original investigators and the passion that they had and the work they did and the documentation they completed uh in those crimes and and i think we built on that we we basically took what was a very solid foundation and yes, had mistakes over the years and everything that always comes with these, but managed to use the current technology and see a conclusion to something that was really, when you go back, really 45 years plus in the making. And it was, it was stunning. It really was. And then having it bust open the way it did and being a watershed event for uh, so dozens, dozens, I imagine into hundreds now cases around the country, uh, truly the worst of the worst people that are now um, behind bars and victims have justice that it's, it's really a wonderful feeling. Awesome. That's great. Monica, how about you? I mean, I agree with, with Ken, there were so many amazing detectives that have worked on this case throughout the years. Some had spent their entire careers on it and even kept working on it, you know, after retirement. So 
I was really honored and felt like it was a privilege to be able to be part of the team, you know, at the end that helped, you know, get to the culmination of all those, those years of, of hard work. And, you know, it's, it's well over a hundred cases now that have been solved by um, genetic genealogy. And, you know, if not for this case, I, I wonder, you know, where we'd be today with that. Yep. No doubt about that. Kirk, how about you? Uh, yeah, it's a, you know, it's just a, a really a groundbreaking event for law enforcement. You know, I think it's the biggest, you know, genetic genealogy is is probably the biggest uh, breakthrough in law enforcement in my career, you know, since DNA itself. And uh, it, um, yeah, you know, it, it was to be, to, to play a part in that, it was, it was definitely a privilege. And um, it, uh, you know, it, it's a testament to all the hard work of all these investigators over decades, you know, that have many that had dedicated their uh, careers uh, to getting this case solved. So, it, yeah, it definitely was an honor to be uh, play a part in that, for sure. How about you, Paul? Well, you know, in, in addition to what everybody else has said, I think, you know, Anne-Marie, you and I were chatting, you know, after uh, victim impact statements, you know, and how powerful they were. And I think it it really underscored that even on a case like this, where you have, um, you know, attacks that occurred, crimes that occurred 30 years ago, 40 years ago, it still has meaning to those people that were affected, either directly or because they lost a loved one. I'm speaking her impact statement because she is uh, ill at home. On June 17, 1976, I went to bed not knowing that in just a few hours, my life as I knew it would change. We were home inside a locked house where we should have been safe. Mr. D'Angelo broke in and woke up my sister and tied her up. He then came to my room and woke me up with his hand over my mouth. After rolling out of bed and swinging at him, I was hit several times on the head before being tied up, gagged, and blindfolded. did what I had to do to stay alive. He stole my car and my purse, which meant he knew my own address on my license and registration. Because of that, I moved out of my apartment so he couldn't find me and my children. I still have a lot of questions I wish could be answered. Why us? How did the defendant know my parents were out of town and that my sister and I were home alone? Survivor who protected her family and had the courage and the bravery to survive that night. It is unconceivable that such a creature exists in this world. May he rot in hell. You know, the way that we all came together, you know, to to work the case. I mean, this was a true culmination of a team effort. And, uh, you know, everybody played a part in it. And then we've seen the ramifications, just like trying to investigate the case when it was unsolved and all the changes that happened in California and, and Nevada, as you brought up, Anne-Marie, but now nationwide, worldwide, you know, how this case has reverberated in terms of the ability to solve the worst of the worst types of crimes with the technology that was employed to catch Joseph D'Angelo. Excellent. I, you know, for me, I just, when I look back on this case, I just, I consider it the greatest testament to passion and persistence by law enforcement and all of those folks that worked on this case for so long. And, and really each of you have, has resonated the most important part, which is that the 
crime has real consequences and there are real victims here. And this particular case um, devastated hundreds of, if not thousands of peoples, and it really had an impact on communities as well. So for me, I think when I look back, I'm just incredibly just honored and, and humbled by what was done and really ultimately the passion and persistence that brought this case to a conclusion. Um, so for each of you, I wanna thank you each individually, Paul Holes, Ken Clark, Monica Zykowski, and Kirk Campbell. Um, and just to wrap this up, I just, I, I wanna start with what we, what we began with, which is the purpose of this podcast, Inside the Crime Files, is really to demonstrate the innovative techniques that are used to solve crime, the inspirational stories that come out of crime. And this case is probably the, the greatest example we'll see in that. So thank you all very much for being part of this episode. Thanks, Henry. I wasn't sure what they were, I, so I came out and I heard the third shot about halfway down the driveway and a scream and glass breaking. And I heard about two more as I stood out here. And then I can hear a little bit of running and then somebody hopping over the fence just right down the street. And I could hear him falling in the bushes and it took him a few seconds to get out of the bushes, but I could tell he was really scrambling. And he came running, running down right down the sidewalk and came right up on the lawn next to the tree. And right, right as he came to the tree, he looked up and he saw me standing right here. And he was pretty surprised because, and he just turned right, turned around as quick as he could. He just turned around and is headed straight down there towards the fire hydrant around the corner. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.